hello everyone. As y'all may know, I'm Deontay Chantel, and today I'm here with the beautiful Fabiola from the Invest with Fab podcast. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Um, and I've been following your journey. You're doing a lot of big things. You are a female real estate developer and a serial entrepreneur. Can you tell us about who you are and what you do? Yeah, so my name is Fabiola Florenville. So I run a marketing agency, Blueprint Creative Group, that I've had since 2007. So we are in the government and corporate sector. So we provide brand strategy, marketing strategy at a corporate level, uh, state and local, and then universities, tourism um, brands, et cetera. And we are now moving into the federal space with our 8A certification coming down a pipeline and hopefully being approved in the next few days or so. And then I'm also a real estate developer. So I've run both businesses in parallel. They started at the same time, actually, 2006, 2007. As a female developer, especially in the commercial real estate space, I'm working on a 138-unit affordable assistant living facility. That's a totally different landscape when it comes to real estate. And you see a lot of structures that are already in place where gender and racial bias uh, is definitely at the forefront. So you get it from both ends. That's amazing. I caught an article or a post on Instagram about doing business with the feds. Mm -hmm. And it was very informational. I've been looking into also how, you know, how to get, what is it called? Is it government certified? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. So I've been also trying to get government certified and I actually meant to you know, reach out to you sooner, even before starting this podcast with like additional questions. But I did catch the video on YouTube. It was very informative. Didn't know the federal government will actually contract individuals or businesses for their services. So I thought that was amazing. I knew it was on the state level, but I just didn't know it was on the federal level. So thanks for putting that information out there because most of individuals, they're on Instagram. They're trying to convince people to buy their products when they can ultimately have the government purchase their pro products and services. So I, I think our community needs it, needs to know that information. And hopefully they'll put themselves in a position to qualify as a business that can work with the federal government. Yeah. So the federal government is the biggest customer that you can have hands down. Not only is the money long, it's good money, but the contracts essentially can be longer terms. They're not buying like for 30 days, unless it's a you know a product or something like that. But essentially you'll have a one, three, five year contract with the federal mm -hmm. government and you can easily scale up your business. So that doing business with the feds webinar that I led with the SBA, that's under my agency umbrella, Blueprint Creative Group. So I have a platform, blackpagesmiami.com, which I created about three years ago. It's a digital directory of black owned businesses in South Florida. And it is powered by the county, a county department here in Miami-Dade County. And so part of our work is to provide technical training to businesses in the community. And so that's one of the topics that we tend to focus on. A lot of businesses tend to leave out the federal government. It's easy to think of city and state, which is cool. That's a good you know, starting point. Mm -hmm. But the federal government is a difference between having a $50,000 contract and having a $2 million contract one contract can do that with the federal government. And there are set-asides for women-owned businesses, small disadvantaged businesses. There are certifications if you're in a hub zone. That's essentially 
an area of a community that may either be an urban area, um, a reinvestment area, and you get set aside for being in certain areas like a hub zone. Right. And a lot of businesses are not using it. And the thing about the federal government is it's hard to get your foot in the door when you don't know what to do. There's a strategy with the federal government. And that's where collaboration and teaming is the formula in the federal government. And the government essentially contracts out every single thing. The government doesn't produce anything and they don't own anything. So everything from the pens that the government uses to the paper to, I mean, I've seen contracts, granted, it may not be as frequent as other commonly used services, but I've seen contracts for hair services because guess what? The prisons, they need barbers, you know, they need salon services. Even from a real estate perspective, the government needs to lease office space and they have contracts for brokers. Right. Um, they have cleaning contracts, janitorial contracts, everything that you can think of, the government has a contract for. That's amazing. Yeah. I recently discovered that they needed barbers in the pre- prison. Actually, earlier this week, I was on another informational session and I was like, that's pretty interesting. And like you said, these are six figure, seven figure contracts. And some of those projects, you don't have to show up every day. It's probably like two to three days out the week for two months or something like that. So I think it's a, it's, I'm glad your company is showcasing these services because it's truly a disservice that many Black entrepreneurs and business owners don't know it's available to them. So it's available. We just have to, it's, it's on us to get the information. The information is freely open yeah. and public. There's nothing that's hidden. When right. you want to be in business, you have to seek out the information. We live in an age of Google University and YouTube, right? So nothing is hidden. Mm-hmm. Everything's available. The SBA has offices in every community, right? Every right. university, a lot of the universities have SBA branches. They call them the SBDC. So the information is out there. Black people have access to it. It's whether or not we're taking advantage. Yeah. It's the difference between being in business and being okay with just making money for you and your family to eat or wanting to be in a business where you can employ other people and get to a point where you can either get your business acquired or you can acquire somebody else's business. And right. that's the generational impact that businesses have to start thinking about. And I totally agree. I actually had where I do business banking at, I'm not going to say the name of the bank, but um, the one of the business account managers, she actually hosted a SBA for women minority businesses, we'll say, women and minority businesses. But that was just on a state level. So I was shocked to know that it's another scale of things. Federal mm-hmm. level is an option. And, you know, they have their, you know, qualifications that you have to meet. And this is where setting up your business correctly comes into play. You know, I feel Mm -hmm. like people just think having a sole proprietorship is starting up a business correctly. And of course it's not, especially if, you know, when the government has their qualifications, you need to have an LLC. In some cases, you need to probably structure a correct S-corp. You need to have a DUNS number. So there's different things that go into setting up a business and some people are just misinformed. But now that we are in the technology space, like you said, going on Google, going on YouTube, YouTube University <laughs> has a lot of great insight and instructions on how to get things done. I mean, even besides that, your back end has to be tight. You need a CPA, not a run in the mill person who does your taxes because the government, they, they audit, they have 
recording and reporting requirements. The paperwork has to be at a certain level. They need to see financial strength and quality um, according to accounting principles. So, and that's the reason why a lot of small businesses got left out of the PPP programs. You got to have all of those things right. Even as a business owner, you might be the only employee. You should be paying yourself wages, W-2. You know, put yourself on a salary because those are all things that make a difference. And you learn that stuff. I mean, I've learned as I've, you know, grown through business, but it's better when you can learn and shorten up that learning curve a lot faster and get there a lot faster. Awesome. And do you teach individuals how to set up their businesses correctly as well? No, that's not the business that I'm in. I'm I mean, there's a lot of small business companies that do stuff like that. We right. work at the government level and corporate. So our services are marketing related for that sector of the business. This webinar was part of blackpagesmiami.com. Okay. Um, and it's part of the technical training that small businesses can get. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So let's talk about real estate. But as we know, that sector of the conversation had to be brought up because it's critical to our okay. communities. But like you stated, you are also a real estate developer. You are currently building or developing a 138 unit assisted living senior housing facility. Right. In Detroit. Awesome. So tell us about that project. So it's a very complex project in a sense that it's affordable assisted living meaning that I'm doing low-income housing tax credits and that subsidized financing from the state level. And that's that part of the, the real estate industry where you're in a different ballpark because it's no longer, you know, I need a $1 million or $2 million loan. You're talking about seven-figure type redevelopment project. Work. Right. I didn't go into it with the intention of it being assistant living. I had been scoping out this building. It was a former senior housing project. So I'm thinking perhaps it'll be redeveloped as multifamily. And then just natural progression as you're doing your due diligence and interacting with potential uh, collaborators, ideas come forth, opportunities come to the table and the fruition of it is an assistant living facility. So, you know, people might think, okay, you're nowhere near being in the senior space age-wise, right? Why would you want to go into that segment? Well, seniors are about to be the biggest demographic shift in this country. In less than five years, I don't even know what the number is, but I would say maybe at least a quarter of this country's population are going to be seniors. All these boomers that are like 50s right now are going to be assistant living age. Assistant living starts Typically, like 62 to 65, the sweet spot is 75 to 85. So the shift is going to happen. So over the past five years, a lot of like the, the bigger developers, they've all been going into the senior space uh, um, because there's a housing shortage. What happens is that seniors um, are having a hard time aging in place. So you've been in your home since you were, you know, in your younger years. And now that you're getting up there in age, you might have two stories. You know, and as you get older, that's not suitable for you. You may need on ramps, you know, for wheelchairs or for canes. Your showers have to be equipped differently as you get older. So seniors have a hard time aging in place. So that's created a housing shortage in this country. So developers essentially were like looking at every corner. Where can we put a senior housing 
building. Now, the difference with assistant living is that it's the in-between between you no longer wanting to be at home and nursing home. So you're not quite nursing home ready. You don't need help. You can live independently. So they all have their own units. They just get like extra services, like three meals a day plus, you know, a snack. They have wellness services. They have medication management, transportation, laundry. And a lot of these seniors, it's the best fit for them. However, it's expensive. Average right. cost is five to $7,000 a month. So only the more affluent seniors typically can afford it. So I'm doing an affordable assisted living facility where it's subsidized. And it's a whole complex capital stack that includes public financing, taxes and bond financing, and other um, sources of CDFI financing as well. That's awesome. That's amazing. And do you have any partners on this deal? Well, I'm the owner of the building. I'm the project owner, but I have a co-developer that I brought on. Um, Real estate is a team sport. Everything from the Empire State Building to every major project out there is a collaboration. Everyone has different strengths. So sometimes you bring collaborators Mm -hmm. in from a financial capacity perspective. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's from on paper. It's much better to have a collaborator when you got to go before a bank. Debt on paper is not exciting for a bank. So on paper, you need collaborators. And so you'll see complex $50 million deals. And this is the difference between us and how real estate is done. We tend to think, okay, let me go ahead and buy me a property. I'm a flip. I'm a wholesale. You know, I, I own a three unit or a five unit. And there's only a limit that you can do when you're doing it on your own. You know, there's a ceiling. So you know, doing real estate from that perspective, you'll stay at that certain level versus when you think collaboratively, you can do a $20 million project without having $20 million in a bank. And that's the difference. So real estate, we have to approach it as a team sport and knowing that it's not something that's ever meant to be done alone. And I agree a thousand percent, whether it's someone needing a credit partner or a finance partner or even a building partner. Sometimes you need to build with uh, construction teams or other developers, of course, to get it done. So I agree wholeheartedly with you. (laughs) It's an out-of-state project for me. I don't live in Detroit. I'm not from Detroit. I don't have, like, strong local ties like now I do, you know, just because I had to build up my social and political capital in order to make this deal happen. But I don't intend on, you know, traveling every other week to be in Detroit. So having a local footprint is a it's important. My attorney is in Detroit right. um, and it's essentially a black owned project. So my attorney to my co-developer, to my GC, my um, architectural and engineering firm are, are all black. Yeah. So it's, it's important. And I'm the actually the only woman on my team. Awesome. So all guys. So I'm the youngest. They're all senior, but this is where it's important for mentors because I, I'm blessed to where I can pick up a phone call and say, hey, there's a building I want to buy in Detroit. I don't know anyone in Detroit. I need a co-developer because it's politics. Real estate is politics at that level. You need to, I'm getting state financing. I need people who got, you know, people on their cell phone who can make phone calls. You know, right. they know people. So you got to have that type of, that root planted. So I, it's, is a blessing to be able to call up a mentor and your mentor leads you to your attorney and your attorney is like, well, I got a couple of names that could team up with you. And it goes down like that. That's beautiful. 
what I would say is people don't realize the importance, even at your level, you have a mentor as well, you know? I have mentors. I probably got like mentors. 20 mentors. Right. Because yeah. I don't know why people have this notion that, okay, I learned how to do it. I don't need nobody to show me how to do it. But even me, like I have real estate mentors and I have spiritual mentors. So I have people for different components of who I am as an individual. But you need them. You need people that you can feed information or get feedback from. Definitely, you need people that are connected, right? Even, you know, having a business advisor. And like you said, real estate is very political. My first episode, we spoke about, you know, doing development. We're in Newark. And I had a female developer from Newark who's doing the same thing that I'm doing in the city. And we definitely discussed how political real estate is. Right. Even if you're building a home, like right. <laughs> I had to submit five different renderings to city council of East Orange and then they decided which house they wanted me to build. Right. You know, um, so whether you're building a hospital, a senior living facility and or a two unit residential, you do have to become peers or collaborators with your municipality in all capacities. Yeah. What inspired you to begin your journey as a real estate investor and or developer? I'm an entrepreneur. I've always been. So I have an MBA degree and I never intended on going into corporate America. So graduated with my MBA and my decision at that point, even though I had opportunities on the table, my decision was to turn my back on those opportunities and to go into business. That was always my intent, even from middle school and high school. So I started my business as soon as I graduated from grad school and essentially bought my first property at that point, you know, 23 years old and bought my first property. And that was my start because I got a couple more within a year's time frame. And that was my start. How did you actually come across purchasing the senior housing building? Like, how did you come across that project? Well, I was looking for a new market to tap into. So I'm in okay. Miami. So I was investing in Miami and Jacksonville, you know, Atlanta is like home number two. That's where I got my start with real estate. But I was looking for like a number two, number three market where competition would be a little different. You know, being in Miami, the competition is fierce. You, you're talking about long money, people who can buy a $10 million building cash with no, without blinking an eye. Right. So I wanted to be able to compete differently and then to be able to bring that back home and do what I need to do from a larger scale. And Detroit was already on my radar. Obviously, you hear the stories about Detroit and the challenges. And then I, but I also saw opportunity in that. So uh, a lot of people tend to go where the herd is going. Mm -hmm. As an entrepreneur, I don't have a problem going in uncharted territory and Detroit is uncharted territory. So I essentially made a phone call to a FAMU alum. I went to FAMU for undergrad and was like, hey, I know you're from Detroit. I'm coming into the city. Who do I need to know? And he led me to a developer who essentially was a black man, young black man, I would say, in his early 50s. And he was part of the casino deal in Detroit. And that's the thing that I loved about Detroit. These buildings have black people on it, all these projects, the, the casino black owned, you drive around these buildings, commercial buildings, all black owned, major developments, all black owned. And 
And that's essentially who pretty much was like, well, let me show you around. So I came in and that, you know, led to everything else. So we know that you, you love collaborating. I love collaborating also. What are some of the skills that you look for in a partner? I don't have certain skills that I look for in a partner. Every single deal that I've done has always been collaboration. Even if it's a single family, I, I bought a property one time, you know, I told my sister, I was like, look, you got cash uh, lying around. You might as well invest in this. Told my mom the same thing. And, you know, they didn't hesitate and they invested in it. So everything is really about minimizing your risk. For me, I have attorneys, I have a CPA, so I allow the legal process to work itself out. So I don't have certain skill sets. If you're willing to go into a deal with me, mm -hmm. you obviously trust me. You obviously trust yourself. You're willing to put some skin in the game. So there's a lot that you're not going to do to kill the deal, right? So that initially already is a qualifier. And then everything else is on paper. I've never had to have an issue because I get the legal side involved very early and have the agreement set in stone. Definitely agreed. And as an, a female investor and developer in this male-dominated industry, have you had any obstacles or have you faced any obstacles as a female in this business? I mean, obstacles are a natural part of being a woman and being Black, right? So... Mm -hmm you don't even really notice them just because you just know it's there. There's invisible barriers. And then there's barriers that are like very open and out there in the public. So that's not uh, a challenge that I see as an obstacle. What I can say is that being in the space at this level of the game, where it's all white guys, a lot of them older white guys, being a younger woman works to your advantage. Being a black woman works to your advantage. And I've had white guys tell me that. They're used to being with other men all day long. And to see a woman who is not intimidated to be in that space, especially since I stick out like a sore thumb, um, not intimidated to be in that space, and I could hold my own in conversation, I, I could spit out numbers just as well as they can. Nothing they tell me intimidates me. And even if it's something that I don't even know, it's, they still wouldn't even see me sweat. So, and then charm works well. In real estate, especially if you're in a male-dominated industry, charm works really well. So you have to know how to use a lot of your own personality to your advantage. Being attractive, I'll say, works very well in real estate. These men, they see men all day long. To see another woman, whether you're black or white, you know, that's, that's a difference for them. So not to say that that overlooks a lot of the systemic barriers, it's there. You know, I'm, I'm on a deal where I got to go to the state for financing. They're not used to seeing somebody like me come before them. So there are some natural barriers that they don't, they're not even aware that they're doing. It's just a natural part of the system to not make it easy or attractive for you to go in. Right. Uh, so I see that all the time. So for me, it's always about outsmarting them. You know, it's always about having my backdoor strategies. And I do that quite often, so I don't really see them as barriers. I just know that they're going to be there. They exist. Now, what do I need to do to be able to overcome this? I love that attitude. And like like you said, it's it's not an obstacle for you. It's definitely, and in many ways, it's 
a benefit, you know, and I've even been invited on projects just because they needed a female, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, there's quotas on larger projects that have to be met. So I've been sorted out for particular projects in our neighborhood. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> you need a black woman to be on there. Let's do it. And then I also looked at them side. I like, really, is that all you need me for? So there, you know, they have a lot of, for one, especially when you're working with and we kind of talked about this a little bit, government or municipality entities, they they have jobs specifically for women to, yeah. you know, participate in. Yeah, but those those kinds of opportunities are far and few in between. The little chunk that they give to black people and, and white mm -hmm. and women is a tiny fraction. It's a sliver of the entire mm -hmm. pie. So yeah. it's totally different. The backroom deals that get handed across the table don't include us. We're not in those conversations. So we might have a nice little deal. Trust me, it's a it'll it, they'll sneeze on it. You know, it's insignificant to them. So they can give it to you just to kind of, I guess, appease you and pat you on the back, you know, and have you feel good. So those deals are, I mean, it's crazy because I, you see contracts that's specifically written for certain developers, right? And there's no way you could ever compete. Right um, against those developers, and so systemically, it's already there. And then being a woman, being younger, being a black person, you're in certain rooms, and you're the only one like yourself in that room. You get overlooked a lot. So, you know, it's it's just part of the part of the system, part of the game. So it's it's not something that you'll ever be able to overcome, even if you blow the whistle, have your bullhorn. They don't care. They want to make money at the end of the day, and the biggest pocket, the biggest deal maker is who makes the money. And a lot of times we're not in those rooms. A lot of times we, and, and I've had to, you know, strategize around this. I'll put in an offer on a deal that I know if they know it's coming from me, it's going to kill the deal. Hmm. So I often have to think about, okay, do I need a front man? You know, do I need to go hmm. get me an attorney that's going to be the front man? And I've had my mentor who's done billion-dollar transactions, significant deals. He was on the pension side and did deals on uh, with public pensions. And even at his level, he's also had to have front men. And when they knew, even though he could do the deal, but when they knew it was coming from him, the language changed. And that mm -hmm. happens a lot, you know, and that's at every level. It doesn't even have to be a $20 million transaction. I'll go ahead and put an offer on the 30-unit apartment building. And they want to know who it's coming from because they size you up like that. And so there are some things that you just can't overcome. And sometimes you just have to be a little slick about how you go about it. Right. And and we can band together. That doesn't like, mean anything. Sometimes. Like, like a bunch of women coming in there? Clap. No, it doesn't mean <laughs> Look, these you deals know, are happening before they even hit the public line. No, I was going to say that. So... For instance, the, my city, the city of Newark, or one of my cities, they actually put out an ordinance. And this ordinance went throughout the country. So they had different ordinances throughout the country for female developers and minority developers. A lot of the projects, so the, our downtown area, it's like at yeah. least 20 abandoned buildings there, okay? Yeah. And you know, you don't, you don't know what's happening. We Like we had a city list in, of vacant and abandoned properties and they didn't, they had certain projects that wasn't on the list, but it was abandoned. 
And I'm like, well, did you guys follow the ordinance for a female developer? Of course they didn't. Of course they didn't. And even when we had, we had a lead pipe incident mm-hmm. similar to uh, Flint as well. Mm-hmm. And even for those contracts, you they needed to have a percentage that went to females and minorities or men as well, men and women minorities. And I say all that to say, they already know who they're going to give the jobs to. And then they have all of these qualifications. So then, you know, the mayor, he noticed he wasn't really in control over who was getting hired. So then he put out training initiatives to make sure the people from the city could qualify for those jobs. So I, I, I appreciated his efforts in that matter because unfortunately people just don't have their stuff together. <laughs> well, this is what it all comes down to. It comes down to, you know, and I'm familiar with how Rasaraka moves and his strategies and all of that, but it comes down to someone in that position being very intentional to say, yeah. look, this is how we're going to do it. It's going to go this way. And you have mayors in the past who have done this from Maynard Jackson yeah. in Atlanta to Marion Berry in DC yeah. to Coleman Young in Detroit, where they were very intentional. We have this, not a little piece of a project. We have this major project Mm -hmm. is going to a black business, right? We're going to be very intentional about it. The contractor requirement, subcontractor requirements have to be a certain percentage black. They're very intentional about it. And it was not just one project. They were deliberate about making sure that a series of significant projects. And if you don't have the capacity, look, we'll create a protege program and put two or three of y'all together to be able mm-hmm. to do this deal. Because a lot of times you get disqualified off of technicality. You don't have bonding capacity. Exactly. You know, you don't have the right subcontracting structure. So the technicality is enough to disqualify you. But when you're very intentional and it takes leadership to be very intentional to say, this is how we're going to do it. We're not just going to give give projects here and there or have a set aside. I'm going to be very intentional about making this city be equitable in how deals get distributed. Yep. And it's very necessary. I also invest in Kansas City, Missouri. And I mean, their whole structure, I don't know if somebody's going to listen to this podcast. I don't care. But their whole, you know, political structure and the way things are done, it's kind of, in a sense, in my opinion, leaving out minority developers in many ways. I do know they had an initiative for their new airport that's being built. But outside of that, you know, they put up a lot of housing projects, not projects like like a project yeah. building, but like um, a skyscraper or something like that or a high-rise building. And even when it came to the people who built it, they didn't have that quota met for the builder of that project. They didn't make sure that at least 25% went to affordable or, well, low, not, I'm not going to say low income, but yeah, affordable housing. Like they didn't have any type of quota. They just put this expensive building in the middle of Kansas City, Missouri, and they allow these developers to have all these tax credits. And I'm like, well, was it benefiting the, the actual communities? No, it wasn't. And, you know, when I come to with these ideas to the table, for some reason, I'm not even trying to do it on that big scale. I'm not trying to put a $50 million building. I'm just trying to build, you know, residential homes. And the big drawback over there is, oh, well, we don't really want affordable housing. You know, like we don't want, and it's sad to say, they'll say, you know, 
those type of people. I'm like, what type of people? Like affordable housing could be any income wage. Well, so all you do is you just meet them at their game. You don't speak affordable housing language. It's workforce housing. It's mixed income housing. And I've I've said that too. So, you know, it's it's you're very true. It's how you word it, how you say it. And then you have to realize also, even if the houses were worth four hundred thousand dollars in that neighborhood and you make them three hundred thousand, that's still affordable housing in a sense, mm-hmm. right? You're building affordable homes for people. You're just selling it under the market rate. So it's different approaches. You know, I came to them as a developer. And in that area, you, of course, you have, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Missouri, but they have like a Kansas state and then they have Missouri. So you have a Kansas city, Kansas and a Kansas city, Missouri. So it's just interesting how backwards they think. (laughs) And they, you know, they don't really, in my opinion, in many ways, they didn't really care about the development of the communities, making sure that people in the communities could actually afford to stay there. So those are some of the, you know, the challenges I come across when trying to rebuild communities. Yeah, I just thought I mentioned that. I can't remember how we got there, <laughs> but yep. So that's amazing that we're, you know, we're having this dialogue. You being in the Southeast and I'm in the Northeast and it seems like we're both trying to one, find out what the communities need, whether it's on in the senior housing or in just regular, the affordable housing space, you really have to service what the community needs, assess what it needs, find out what the master plans are and the communities, what those communities plan to do in the future, things of that nature. So that's good that we're touching on that those areas. Now, how important is mindset in being a real estate entrepreneur as a whole? Well, mindset really the footprint that you want to walk in. I mean, I, re- I could be doing a 10 unit deal that's $100,000 a door, or I can do a 138 unit that's, you know, seven figures. And it's really about knowing or having the confidence and the understanding, the technical understanding to be able to take down a deal like that. And it's a difference also in the size of deals that we set our eyes on. It's so easy for us to just stick, you know, the pin one dimensionally and focus on doing a certain type of deal, but there's money out there. And the reason why they can have certain structures in place that keep us out is because we're not in that space anyway. If more of us were taking down $20 million projects, Hmm. um, I put in the offer in December on a hundred, it was probably like almost 160 units in, in, in Atlanta. That was, well, my offer was probably like around a 13, 14 million mark. And what probably got selected was maybe upwards of like 15 and a half. Mm-hmm. But being able to put a deal together like that and understanding the structure and being able to figure out where the financing and the equity comes in, if more of us can participate in those types of deals, our conversation totally changes. Because there's, in all of those levels, there's different beasts to have to deal with. And if they see more of us in those spaces, then naturally it creates a pathway for us. The reason why we can't compete is because we're not going for those types of deals. We're not structuring ourselves to be able to pursue those types of opportunities. So they're not used to seeing someone like me come in and say, look, I'm looking for low income housing tax credits for 138 unit, you know, senior living facility. If there were 
people ahead of me that had already pursued opportunities like that, then their perspective of my project and the viability of it would be totally different. And that's where that shift has to come in. We have to be in that uh, scalable area to be able to say, look, we can have significant shifts all at once. It has to be critical mass, like us sticking to a certain level. Granted, I know that, you know, generationally we've been crippled, right? We don't have the, that million dollar check that our father, you know, started us off with. We don't have that trust fund. We don't, you know, we've been crippled from that point of how the system like cut off our lifeline. But that's where strategy, that's where collaboration and teaming comes in. These deals are happening. I mean, when I say these boys out here are, are killing it, and they're doing, and I mean, I had one reach out to me to say, look, we're in our last leg of raising for a thousand one unit multifamily portfolio in wow. Texas. And he knew how to structure the deal, where to find the equity, how, how to put the financing. And then the approach me and said, look, we have about $10 million that still needs to be raised if you want to be able to come in and help us raise. Before I could even sneeze, he had already raised the $10 million. But that's, that's the deal that's happening. If we can get in those spaces, the respect level is totally different because money respects money at the end of the day. Exactly. So yeah, white and black and everything else in between, you know, there's disparities, but at the end of the day, these boys speak money. Whether you're a woman or a man, all they care about at, at the end of the day, why do you think they vote a certain way, right? Because it all comes down to money. They wanna make money and make more of it. So when you can come in and have that type of language with them, when you can come in and structure those types of deals with them, it doesn't matter what you look like. They might hate you when you walk out the door, but when we're at the table, we're all equals. You know, we have the same type of balls and they have no choice but to respect you because at the end of the day, that's all they care about. Right. Now, you mentioned the tax credits. What is that process? How do you get the tax credits for these large projects that you're, you're actually speaking of today? It's not an easy process. You have to understand how to essentially put a deal together for that. Everything from the financial side to being able to structure it, knowing how to work the state side, the tax credits work with taxes and bond financing. You got to be able to work that. And that's why being able to do these deals, you got to know your finance. You got to know how to put numbers together. At the end of the day, it's all a numbers game. If you don't know how to structure it on paper, you won't know how to structure the deal and negotiate and pitch the deal. But low-income housing tax credits essentially are credits from the federal government that comes down and are allocated to the state, um, every state. And they allocate 4% tax credits and 9% tax credits. 9% are more competitive and there are a lot more stringent requirements, but it's a larger um, pool of money that you can get from that. 4% is on a rolling basis, so it's not as competitive. And then there are other requirements, but essentially tax credits, depending on the percentage of your income that is affordable, and affordable for those standards are below, at or below 60 to 80% AMI average moderate income. So being able to structure all of that, there's a technical side to it. And even on this deal, I've never done a tax credit deal before, but Mm there is not going to be any one thing that's going to stop me from being able to pursue a deal. So just because I've never done tax credits, just because I've never structured the financing for it before, does not mean that it's going to uh, keep me out of that door. Essentially, a tax credit reduces your debt that you make right. because it's essentially equity in the deal in exchange for keeping the deal affordable. So I put in my homework and my time in structuring my deals to be able to work for LIHTC. 
So whatever I had to um, learn, I, I learned it. And, and, you know, the rest is history. Yeah, you're doing you're doing the darn thing. So I'm 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 super excited to see you know the rest of your journey. When is that project going to be finished, or when do you expect the completion of the project? Oh, shovel ready. That's a 15 to 18 month construction project. It's 70,000 uh-huh. square feet, so it's not something mm-hmm. that's going to happen overnight. When right. you're working with public financing, that's 12 months, eight to 12 right. months to even structure the deal. Right, and that's the other thing. You got to have patient money to be able to stay in a deal that long without even being able to start the project. You know, that it, you can't start it till you get all the financing in place. So that means exactly. that you're sitting and holding the building and the project. So you got to be able to have that type of patient money to be able to do so. And then then you got the construction period, which is another 15 to 18 months. You got your licensing period. And then you have your stabilization period of when the house, the building was, will be totally stabilized so a project like that these projects they, they're four or five years in the making right but the value of it is well worth it so you're taking a property that say is a 10 million dollar development 20 million dollar development and in less than two years i mean 10 years you're going to double that in value so it's worth the the whole five-year process that it takes to get into the pipeline absolutely and i know one of your personal goals for 2020 was to get to 500 units, correct? Right. Awesome. Mm-hmm. And how has, during COVID, that process been? Are, do you realize that there are deals out there or you feel like things are, you know, still overpriced? Real estate is real estate, right? It's cyclical. Mm-hmm. So the way the market is now will probably change later on. I mean, we've seen it in our lifetimes a couple of times. COVID actually has not really impacted the real estate market the way that people anticipated that it would. So I don't think it's had any impact on that. I mean, the only impact that you would say is maybe initially everyone's kind of like being antsy in terms of what's going to happen and maybe being more so on hesitation to see, but deals are getting done left and right. Houses are selling every day. There's a closing every day. The market in my area, I'm in the New York, New Jersey market. I'm also a realtor too. So there's line, like literally open houses have lines of people out there. People are outbidding. There's bidding wars. Houses are selling $30,000, $40,000 over asking. It's it's nuts. So yeah, it's actually one of the best real estate seasons to date. And, and I think a lot of others can agree with me. It's been a very busy season. Not for me in the beginning, because I wasn't going outside <laughs> meeting with people. But, you know, for for people on my real estate team, they're definitely doing closes like twice a week. So okay. they're doing great. But from the investment standpoint, you know, I guess a lot of individuals was expecting for, you know, houses to go down a little and it's just going up. So I'm like, you better I mean, here's the thing. Now. There was a lot of cash Mm-hmm. You know, even before COVID hit, I mean, I remember I was pitching a deal and I, what I was looking for in terms of equity, they were like, we don't want to cut less than five to $7 million. So there was a lot of investable cash. There's so much money out there. And one thing that I learned and my mentor really emphasized that to me, it's so much easier to raise money for a larger deal. I can go raise me a $3 million check 
so much faster from one or two investors than I can finding a hundred thousand dollar um, from say twenty people, you know, investing to get to a hundred thousand dollars. It's so much easier. So there was a lot of investable cash already out there before COVID. Mm-hmm. So the money is just sitting and waiting to be invested. So I think that's why a lot of the activity, because if this economy were to shift the way it's going to shift, the last thing you want to do is to sit on your money. It's not doing anything for you being in a savings account or in a different investment account. You need to park it in a building. So there's a lot of investable cash that's just looking to park their money somewhere. Yep. So, I mean, I know based on your instagram page and i'm going to check out your podcast in full detail but i but i I know you're a wealth advocate what does wealth mean to you wealth to me means that three generations down from now my buildings and my projects are still um in existence and i have that third or fourth generation still living wealth to me is how Carnegie and Ford and Rockefeller have their names on foundations and in buildings and they've been gone. They've been dead for God knows how long. That's wealth. And I actually just had a post about that today for National Black Business Month. I created a a living trust. And essentially that is my pipeline for the generations after me. You know, that's part of structuring your future for wealth. If what you're doing right now only benefits you and when you die it ends or maybe your children or your spouse your parents maybe can eat off of it that's good you know that's i think that's that's good to be able to hand off something to your immediate beneficiaries but what's even more powerful is when you can have a living trust for people who don't even exist and their name in it already and that's what's well when you can say, I'm going to plan this for my great, great grandkids who I don't even know if they're going to even come around just yet. And let's say they, they're, they, it never happens. Well, I'll put this in a foundation or it'll go to a nonprofit. That's well. And that's where we need to start thinking about how we see money and how we tap into money. It's cool to have a nice car and live in a nice place, but it's even cooler to know that you have an estate plan in place. Agreed a thousand percent. I actually used to be a, a real estate paralegal okay. and um, an estate planning paralegal and probate paralegal as well. And now I, you know, when I got laid off from that job and then I really started doing well in real estate, I'm like, well, I wish I would have gotten, you know, took all of those <laughs> templates. So I didn't, I don't have to pay thousands of dollars to an estate attorney. Oh no, pay it. Yeah. Um, well, no, I did pay it. I did. But yeah. when I had to pay it, yeah. when I had to pay it, I was like, I had access to all of this. I had Dynasty Trust. I had all type of trust. Yeah. <laughs> I computer. mean, um, I, I, I don't care how yeah. much I know of something, I pay someone. Because sometimes it's good to have a representative, right? I, I've paid an attorney to do stuff that I can do on my own. But right. just to be able to have an attorney speak for you is a game right. changer. And so I talk about investing in yourself and in your business. Sometimes that retainer that you pay an attorney goes a lot further than you saying, this is something that I could easily do or file on my own. Absolutely. Yeah, it just, you know, 
when I was writing out the check to pay. <laughs> right, right. right. You, know, you never want to cut a check. Yeah. You know what I mean? But like when I was being paid for, I was like, wow, like I didn't realize the, where I would be a couple of years after the fact, you know, right. I used to be the person drafting these saw it and you got a foundation for it because mm -hmm. our community we die and test it we we die without a will for one and a will you still got to go through probate right you know i think the most recent story is aretha franklin right wow. and her dying would i mean they found a will but it was a barely there will and will you still have to go through the whole you know probate process a living trust you bypass all of that Exactly. Yep. So, so we need to learn more so about structuring stuff and family planning and asset protection. Absolutely. And any last words on what it takes to become a successful in real estate investor and or developer? I don't think anyone can give anyone a formula. Success obviously looks different to everyone else, but there's it's not linear. So to say, you know, what it takes to become successful. My only thing is just do it. I think fear keeps a lot of people out of the game and yes. not knowing how to do it. There's not a deal that I see that I won't have the confidence to do, even if I've never done it before. If I see a $50 million building that I really want, I'm going to mm -hmm. figure out how to get it. I saw this building that I bought eight months before I actually put an offer on it. I didn't know what the plans were going to be. I don't worry about having all the details. You know, sometimes analysis paralysis keeps us out of the game. Yes. I didn't worry about having, knowing where the financing was going to come from. I bought the property without having financing in place. I bought the property without even knowing that I was going to do the tax credits. I bought the property without even having a co-developer or an operating partner or even the relationships in place. I, you know, for me, let me just, stick my foot in there. Let me just go ahead and do it and everything else, I'll figure it out along the way. And a lot of times, because we want all the details and all the information up front, we kind of take ourselves out of the process because you're not going to know everything. This project has evolved. I wasn't looking at tax credits when I bought the building. I definitely wasn't looking at assistant living when I bought the building or when I saw the building. So for me, I don't look to have all the details up front. Everybody's not that type of an entrepreneur. I get right. it. Everybody's risk level and tolerance and appetite for risk is different. So I get that part. Start with your comfort level. Let your appetite grow from there. I agree. In this business, you just have to be fearless. Like, even if you don't have everything figured out, like you said, one thing's for certain. If you have a good deal and the numbers make sense and you it's know how to work out. Right. It's going to work out. People's going to throw money at you. Literally, yep. I, have, I have projects now I don't even need partners on. And just because people know it's a good deal, they just want, oh, I want to be involved. I'm like, I, right. I didn't need you for this project. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, so that's definitely great advice. Well, it was a pleasure uh, speaking with you today, Fab. Thank Hopefully, you. you know, in the future we'll be able to meet. We may even be able to partner or collaborate on a deal together. I love what you're doing. Continue to do what you're doing. Thank and you. We'll definitely be in touch. Any last regards? And where can people find you on the internet or wherever you right. promote yourself? I'm sorry. Well, my last words, I don't even know who, what, you know, what type of listeners you have. 
I'm just going to assume that they're black, right? So I'm going to just have my little PSA out there and whoever wants to gravitate towards it. We got to get the money. The money's out there. The money's not going to come to us. The deals are not going to come to us. They're not going to structure the system in our favor. We got to figure it out. We got to go out and do it. Who cares how scary the deal works? I mean, how scary the deal looks? Who cares what it's going to take? Put the people at the table to make it happen. You don't need to be the smartest person in the room to make the deal happen. Just put the right people around the table. But we got to go out and get the money. We have a wealth gap that we got to close. And the only way we're going to close it is if we create new Black millionaires. And that's that's where I'm at right now. To see more new Black younger black millionaires being created and i don't mean and i don't i don't take credit away from anyone who makes their money however they make it but there are certain industries that we have to break the barriers on so you could have made your millions off of sports or music or entertainment you could have made your millions off of beauty and or influence you know a lot of influencers are making money but we got industries where we're not in technology we need to go make some millions and billions in technology commercial real estate development projects. We need to have buildings. When I drove by, when I was looking for my building in Detroit and I drove through and I was doing my site selection, seeing buildings where they're like, that's black owned, that's black owned. I don't mean houses and duplexes and quads. I mean, commercial buildings, office buildings, casinos that have a black majority owner that's what we need to see more of. Until we can see that, we will not shift the paradigm. We got to have our names on buildings. We got to be able to get $50 million federal contracts. It's out there. It's available. Other people are getting it. Why can't we get it? We got to figure out how to do it. And if you don't have all the resources and all the tools, find somebody else. Find 10 other people who right. can do it with you. But that's my sounding words. I know people preach about starting i preach about going big and you preaching um, i was about to say preach a couple of times <laughs> yeah. i preach about going oh, big right. maybe that's where faith comes in but i preach about going big there's nothing that that i want that i can't figure out how to do and that's where abundance that abundance mentality comes in it's all out there it, it all belongs to god it's all available yeah. so i don't care what white boy is doing what I don't care what access he has that I don't have access to. It's not his in the first place. Our people built this country anyway. So it's due time for us to get it. And we got to go out and get it and figure out how to get it. Um, and people can, you know, find me on Instagram at investmentbat. Awesome. I was about to ask you what church you preach at because that was good. No, <laughs> you no, gave I, don't preach I know, I know, I know. I'm playing. It's I am a preacher's joke. kid, but I don't preach oh, at really? anybody's church. Yeah. Awesome. So, Either way, that you spoke a lot of, I, I feel like a lot of people's lives are going to be changed by your words. So, oh, that would be amazing. Yep, absolutely. I mean, well, I'm, I'm still looking to change my life. Where is Yana <laughs> at? It's my life, Yana. Well, it seems like it's well put together. But I'm going to, well, thanks for, for coming on. We can continue to talk after. I just want to close it out because we'll go into a whole nother uh, subject, right? <laughs> but um, it was a pleasure having you on. And I'm looking forward to seeing your, the rest of your journey. And God bless. Thank you. I appreciate it. All righty. Thanks.